0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. This week, we have got quite an interesting new guest for you. Malcolm Robinson is here. He has never been on Dreamland before. And what makes him so interesting, he's going to be talking about a UFO hotspot that I bet you have never really heard of unless you are one of our uk listeners and you will have certainly heard of it in that case it's scotland malcolm has been doing his work of ufo research in scotland for many many years malcolm welcome to dreamland and how long have you been doing this
1: it's a pleasure to be on your show um i've been working in ufology for nigh on 40 odd years lately. So it's a a wonderful subject to be involved with. Uh, It's very, very good, here.
0: What in the world got you started in
1: this lunatic asylum of
0: ours?
1: (laughs) Well, I've always been interested in strange phenomena. Ever since I was a small boy growing up in Scotland, I always had this fascination for all things weird and wonderful. But I'll be honest with you, Whitley, I honestly believed at that time There were no validity to ghosts, no validity to the paranormal, and certainly no validity to UFOs. But it's like anything else in life. Once you get involved in the subject, once you start talking to people and going out there and doing the research, there's clearly no smoke without fire. I soon found out as I got involved that, hey, there's something really real here. Now, obviously, you and I know, Whitley, that the vast majority of UFO reports have natural, identifiable solutions. We're only talking about a small 5%. 3% of the 5 could be our own black budget technology. We don't truly know what America's got in the skies right now. And that's given rise to many false UFO reports from ground-based observers the two percent is left one could be a rare atmospheric phenomena something akin to ball lightning maybe the one percent the fly anointment for me and many of my colleagues in scotland and the united kingdom is that we're dealing with something real something truly bizarre something that's always been with us through a time immemorial We've seen it in Renaissance paintings. We've seen it in cave art. There's clearly, clearly something there. So I went from being a total skeptic to now admitting and acknowledging that we're dealing with something real. Absolutely. Now, what, what got you started, though?
0: Because if you were not interested and then suddenly you became interested, was there an event or a person or a, a meeting? So what, what
1: started you off? Well, there's a number of strange paranormal events that uh, happened to me during the course of my life. And I remember as a young boy, I was at the school playground in Scotland and it was a lovely summer's day. I was probably only a bee about 10 years of age. And I looked up into the sky and here was this clear, it was like an egg-shaped object hovering about 3, 400 feet above us. And even as a young boy, I knew straight away (laughs) that this wasn't a conventional aircraft or a conventional helicopter of any way, shape or form. And after a period of minutes or so, it just took off and was gone. So that was one of the incidents. I found numerous paranormal incidents as well, because obviously we research ghost guys. I've been touched. uh, uh, My hair's been pulled. I've been kicked by nothing as well. And that's took me off the proverbial sceptical fence when it came to, to ghosts. But with UFOs, it probably was 1979, uh, because I was still unsure what was going on. And a case presented to me, which totally took me off that fence. Some of your viewers may, may be aware of it. For those who are not, I'd like to just quickly talk about it. It's called the Deckment Woods UFO Incident and it occurred in central Scotland way back in 1979. The story goes that forestry foreman Robert Taylor, he was employed by the Livingston Development Corporation to ensure that no cattle or sheep strayed into the woods. Very mundane job. He was actually a war hero, Whitley. He was in the tank regiment to liberated Bergen-Belsen during the Second World War. After the war he went, he did some various jobs, so now he's a forestry foreman, 1979. He had no interest in UFOs, as most people have, he he knew about them, but he he wasn't really interested in them. All that changed. All that changed on the morning of November the 9th, 1979. He was driving into a forest. Uh, in his pickup truck and accompanying him on that journey with the, was his Irish red setter dog, Lara. They jumped, they got out of the truck. They started walking down this forestry path. And the path leads out into a clearing, about 40, 50 feet clearing. And lo and behold, he could not believe him. There's this large, round object, this massive, big object Floating. About 30, 40 feet above the the surface of the grass, it had a flange going around its perimeter. It had cross-like projections sticking up from the flange. And he's standing there. He couldn't believe what he's seen. And his dog was bark, bark, barking furiously beside him. And then the object seemed to disappear. And you could see the young trees in the background, and it would solidify again. And then what happened next, Whitley, was these two spherical spheres dropped down from beneath the, the subject, impacted on the grass, and started rolling across the grass towards him, pulling him very violently towards this object, and he lodged, lost consciousness at that point.
0: Okay, well, we will find out, free dreamlanders, in just a minute what happened when he regained consciousness. We'll be right back. We're talking to Malcolm Robinson, Scottish UFO investigator, the Falkland Hill UFO incident, Scotland's most controversial UFO case. we will getting into it in a little bit. It's his latest book and it is c- quite incredible. It's, this is one of the most incredible of all UFO incidents, but let's go back to that clearing, the barking dog, yes. the unconscious man,
1: What happened next? (laughs) Well, um, he lost consciousness. When he regained consciousness, we don't know how long he was out for. He was lying on the forest floor. His clothes were all muddy. His trousers were ripped. And he staggered back to his pickup truck. He tried to radio his, his base, but he couldn't speak. He stumbled back to his house. His wife went, what's happened to you? And he said, I've been assaulted. You've you've been assaulted by by men, no, by a UFO thing, and she says, "Look, come in," but she knew her husband. She knew he would not make up a story like that. So they got the forestry foreman, the worker involved, is Bob's boss, and then they actually got the police involved. The police were there. The forensic department looked at his trousers. His trousers were all ripped. And they fenced off the area and you could see all these triangular and circular impressions in the grass, track light marks in the grass as well. And it's the only case in the British Isles that's been deemed uh, it's a a case where the police have been involved. And they they considered it as an assault by person or persons unknown. And to this day, it still stands the test of time. Uh, One of Scotland's most bizarre UFO incidents.
0: Now does he did he ever attempt to recover any memory or anything like that?
1: The where there was a hypnotherapist that was used on Mr. Taylor, and um, but it was a stage hypnotherapist, and all they got was back to that time when he saw this massive big object disappearing, solidifying, and then bang, blackness he couldn't see. And incidentally, I do actually have the, the ripped trousers. That he wore.
0: Oh my God! How fabulous! <laughs> how fascinating! Well, let's take a little closer look at those folks.
1: Yeah. So those wow. trousers there. Now, the police forensic officer says, Malcolm, these trousers were ripped in a mechanical manner. They were not ripped by any forest debris or any sharp stones or anything like that. They clearly were ripped in a fashion. And it's nice to have these trousers, Whitley, because it's a piece of evidence. Skeptics might say, well...
0: I I wonder if it almost looks like someone is trying to get them off him.
1: (laughs) Possibly. He noticed when these these two spheres dropped down and rolled across the grass, he extended these rod-like projections and pulled them at the hips and pulled them forcibly. And at that point, Whitley... He remembers a terrible burning smell, a uh, like burning brake linings, pervading the whole area, and he bang, he lost consciousness. And um, it's it's a it's a wonderful case, it really is.
0: Oh yeah, it's a fabulous case. Uh, there are so many cases in Scotland, and uh, you know there there are cases all over the world. But I want to roll back to the moment you were touched by this. You were how old when you first?
1: Um, Well, probably I was probably about nine or ten when I really got involved with it. Well, when I started to learn about it, but probably seriously from about eighteen or nineteen years of age, that's when I really got really embroiled in it. Yes.
0: But you were touched by it at some point in your life. You saw what was it? An orb? Or...
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was uh, this 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 um, orb shaped object floating above a school playing field and a. I couldn't believe it. We're also doing research at Loch Ness, and I saw a UFO at Loch Ness as well, would you believe? <laughs> <laughs>
0: did you see Loch Nessie as well and a
1: UFO? Well, I've been down. I've been fortunate. I'm one of the few people in the world to have gone down in a submarine in Loch Ness. Oh, tell us about it. You, I did not know this. How fabulous. Yes, um, it, was a, it was about 15, 20 feet submarine, a mini submarine, And it was sponsored by Swatch Watches, and it was there to take uh, core samples of the lock floor. And on the front of the submarine had a toughened glass portal with several very, very strong halogen lights at the top. We went out and we uh, dove to about 500 feet or so. And if you can imagine, um, this is a lock floor, this is a submarine. As it traversed over the lock floor, the, the lock floor just fell away. And I said to the skipper of the submarine, can we go down there? He says, no, we've got to stick to our allotted course. Very, very claustrophobic in the submarine. It had dials, it had switches, there were condensation coming running down the walls. We never saw Nessie, but the skipper of the submarine says, Malcolm, we have had very, very strange anomalous sonar returns, which even I, that's what he said, as a trained sonar operator, I can't understand. And that's the thing about Loch Ness. I do believe there's something there in excess of 15 foot. It's not a plesiosaur without a shadow of a doubt, because plesiosaurs, as we know, they couldn't extend their neck. But I've spoken to a a priest at Loch Ness many years ago, a man of the cloth, and he said, Malcolm, I myself have seen this creature. The loch was like a sheet, sheet of glass, not a ripple. And then suddenly this long tapering neck with a small head thrust out from the bowels of Loch Ness and cascaded back into the, the the lock as well now this is a man of the cloth now that's not to say you know men of the cloth and police officers don't lie but we know that but his conviction was he says look i really did see this and what we have to remember back in 1987 we had operation deep scan that was a flotilla of boats with the most sophisticated sonar apparatus on these boats. They went up and down Loch Ness for several days, and they got some unbelievable sonar contacts on the sonar as well. So clearly there's something there, yeah.
0: Yeah, clearly there's something there. And, you know, that business of anomalous uh, sonar readings, makes me think of a lot of the anomalies that surround um, Bigfoot, which is is something other than a normal creature, because it comes and goes in strange ways. And I'm wondering about, I mean, we could say that, you know, what is it something like they think that uh, only about 20% of the fauna from the era of dinosaurs has ever been discovered because fossils off usually don't even happen it's a rather rare event for something to fossilize and so this could easily be from that era certainly not a plesiosaur but there could have been something else that we've never even identified but uh, go ahead
1: you, you made a good point i mean we're finding on planet earth species of new species of frogs of insects on a daily basis the Sasquatch right. Bigfoot, um, these are unbelievable strange tales. I'm no denying that there's something there. People are seeing them. And uh, so there are other things operating on planet Earth that um, science needs to, to recognize for sure.
0: Yeah, there's something about these some of these uh, sightings, well, like the anomalous sonar returns that he didn't understand. Uh, you know, if you read the Bigfoot literature or talk to people who are in it, as I have many times, very few of them will maintain that Bigfoot is, is is entirely a natural phenomenon that we would understand if only we could find one. The reason we can't find one is that it's not entirely a natural phenomenon, and I think that's possibly true of Nessie as well. But researchers don't like to talk about that. That makes them nervous because they think, well, we're having enough trouble being believed in the first place. If we start to say that this is some kind of uh, some kind of uh, anomalous thing, it's going to be even more difficult. So yeah, yeah, go I would, ahead.
1: I would, I, would, I would accept that because some people think it's some form of tulpa, like a thought form. The more people think about something, something suddenly materializes like uh, the, the lamas, the tibetan monks etc allegedly created these figures there was a canadian group called sora who actually made this cavalier appear just by thinking of them it took them several months to achieve that admittedly so we, we've got to think out the box maybe it's something strange maybe it's, it's it's not necessarily a flesh and blood creature as such it could be a whole range of things but um That's what makes the subject of ours so fascinating because the the mysteries are there to be solved. And if Nessie turns out to be a big, large fish, fine. Absolutely. Let's, let's go.
0: Well, it's a a really strange fish because it comes up out of the water like that every every so often. Gosh, I don't think it's, I think it's been ages since I had a full show on Nessie. Uh, Maybe we'll do that someday in the future um, because it's, a lot has been happening lately, but let's let's move on now. Uh, the, Scotland is an area where there are de- densely populated cities and lots of very, very open country. And I, it, a study has never been done, but I believe that areas like that are particularly attractive to our visitors. At like the area of upstate New York where I lived, where there was a lot of movement between the city and and this area, because people would come and go, and it gave them a lot of, of variety to look at. In other words, they could go down in that area, stay pretty much hidden and out of the out of the uh, uh, out of the mainstream. I mean, let's face it, the way they are, they're hardly likely to go down on Fifth Avenue and. Abduct someone, but Hopkins tried for years to uh prove the Linda Quartile case and couldn't quite do it uh although he felt he had but but not not in the not in the classic way, so we have a situation where uh we can't quite pin it down, but maybe one of the reasons Scotland is so active is that kind of flux. I mean, what do you think causes it to be so much more active, maybe than the south of England, which of course is full of crop circles uh, in Wilshire, but if you go like down into Sussex, there are very few sightings.
1: Yeah. Well, clearly Scotland is known as, in youthful speak, as a window area or a hotspot. It's a location where it's you know there's quite a number of these hot spots across the world, Gulf Breeze and Pensacola for instance. But Scotland, you're correct, has seen a high rise of UFO reports um for many, many years now. Bonnie Bridge in central Scotland is a big, big hotspot. Maybe speak about that in a moment. Um and um there is areas of Scotland which is totally sparse, totally is just barren landscape and that. And I think maybe, I mean, obviously there must be a reason why these these beings, for want of a better word, are actually coming here. Now, I firmly believe we're dealing with the, these beings, for, for sure. You know, we're talking about these three and a half to four feet uh, small childlike bodies, large pear-shaped heads, black inky, inky almond-shaped eyes, which, as you know, Whitley, these have been seen in Scotland as well. Uh, There's a famous case in the A70 when uh, two men were driving from Edinburgh down to a little village in Tabrax. Now, getting back to your point, either side of this road is very, very barren. It's just fields, countryside. And as they're driving down the road, they encountered this black hovering object about 30 feet above the surface of the road. And again, like most people in close proximity sightings, they knew, they knew that it wasn't a helicopter or a or, or an aircraft of any description. So if you can imagine, this is a UFO, this is a car, and as the car was directly underneath this UFO, it emitted a silver shimmering mist that just hit the car. And as soon as that hit the car quickly, both men were catapulted into total and inky blackness. They couldn't see their hands in front of their car. They couldn't see the dashboard of the car. They thought they were dead. Seconds later, they regained their sight. The car was on the other side of the road. They had to pull the car over. They drove to their destination and they knocked on the occupant's door. And the the occupants went, what time do you call this? Do you know what time it is? They were an hour and a half late. So they proceeded to tell the occupants of the house what had happened. That night... And subsequent nights thereafter, they had strange dreams of these small grey creatures coming into their dream world. And then they found scars, scars on their body that previously were not there, scooped like scars, etc. And they went, who do you go to? Do you go to the police? Who do you report these things to? Long story short, they went into a library in Edinburgh and they picked out a book by Jenny Randalls. And my address for my society was in that book. They contacted me. And at that time I advocated the use of hypnosis as a tool, as a tool to perhaps lift the sluice gates of the mind and fingers crossed, any possible external recall may come out of their minds. And he says, Malcolm, we'll be, we're will be we happy to do that. Your wives don't believe us. Your workmates don't believe us. We're, we're getting ridiculed. We need to know what happened, Malcolm. So we subjected them independently to hypnotic regression and the typical abduction scenario unfolded. The conscious recall, Whitley, was ever, only ever, of seeing this disc-shaped object, shiny disc-shaped object above the car, and this screaming light that came down. That was a conscious recall. Under hypnosis, they claim, and this is what they said, the car was stopped. They were approached by several of these small grey creatures. They were taken forcibly out of the car. Now, they weren't walked to this object. Incredibly, they were put on a like a stretcher, but nobody was holding it. It was suspended in the air, and these greys were standing next to it. Gary Wood, one of the abductees, then found himself completely naked, lying on this flat raised table in this silver room. And he says, Malcolm... I couldn't move a muscle. I could only move my eyes. I desperately wanted to hit out of these small creatures, but, but I couldn't do it. And they were moving around his bed, etc. Over this flat raised table. And suddenly he saw this black lens shaped device. It was about three feet, three feet in width, just tumbling in the air above him. And then he... Colin, that's the other abductee, found himself in this perspex chamber completely naked. It was, it was an unbelievable case.
0: Well, we'll get back to it in just a moment, Free Dreamlanders. We're talking to Malcolm Robinson, the author of over 40 books on the UFO subject. His latest one, which we are going to get to very soon, is the Falkland Hill UFO incident and you will not forget this. This is an extraordinary case, but there are lots of extraordinary cases in this Really extraordinary man's long career. So we'll be right back We're talking to Malcolm Robinson Malcolm is a UFO investigator par excellence the Falkland Hill UFO incident is one of the most extraordinary of all UFO incidents we've ever known about in, the, in history, and we'll be getting to that shortly. But before we do that, Malcolm, I wanna talk about agendas because the story that you just told is not a story of sort of a halting contact. It is a story of an organized process. These people are taken, they are stripped naked, and something is done. Well, the question I have, and as an abductee myself, I've been wondering this for a long time because I was assaulted too. Yes. I had semen removed from my body forcibly but you, by the use of an a, of a electro-stimulation device that I struggled so much when it was in my body that I tore my rectum, and I became known as the rectal probe man and laughed at for nearly... more than 40 years now for being raped because I spoke of it publicly and I've had that and I'd like to know about this agenda because uh, I think it's there and I think people like you who have talked to many many witnesses might have some real insight into this Uh, what tell us a little bit more about your ideas about the agenda
1: that is an agenda Absolutely, there is an agenda. Sadly, we can only speculate. I mean, people have been abducted, as you mentioned a moment ago. Sperm and ova has been taken from males and females. I've spoken to a female abductee. She says, Malcolm, I was re-abducted. And in the ship, I was told telepathically, and I was shown this hideous, half-human, half-hybrid child. And telepathically, I was told this belongs to you. Now it can't be, it can't be that they're doing these experiments because they've been doing them for over fifty, sixty, seventy years. Surely they've got enough genetic material from mankind. Is it the souls? Is it they're trying to get our soul from from humankind? We all know that these small greys may not be flesh and blood. They could be some engineered creature, for want of a better word. But it really frustrates me speaking to people who've been subjected to this horrendous process taken from their rooms, taken from their cars. And it's it's an unwanted process, you know, and they're terrified, absolutely terrified. Get, I mean, in this A70 case, the, the witness, Gary Wood, says, Malcolm, when I was lying on this flat raised table and I couldn't move, I looked down. I couldn't look down to the floor of this craft And it was a naked female, a naked female sitting on the floor. She had her knees up under her chin, and she had her arms locked around her knees. She had her back towards me, and she gently turned round and looked at me. And he said, Malcolm, she had tears running down her face. She looked so sad, so forlorn. And that's the thing, when Colin was in this structure, he says, Malcolm, I couldn't move either. And there were people to the left, people to the right, males, females, young, old. So there is an agenda. Absolutely there's an agenda. But at my time of life, after over 40-odd years, if not more, I'm no closer to finding out that purpose. People have said maybe they are the gods. In other words, it was them that seeded mankind on this planet. So they're not effectively taking anything out of us, they're putting something into us. Who knows? Are they time travelers, etc.? Um, I, I, I don't know. I really don't know.
0: Well, I notice, and I'm sure my viewers and have too, and listeners, I'll tell you, uh, that there is a model of the time machine from the movie *The Time Machine* on uh, on the the bookcase behind you. Yes. Let's uh-huh. talk about time then. Give us give us an idea about your thoughts about what my wife felt might be true too. She was very strong on this idea that they might be from the future, or even from the past, or from some other different different meaning of time, and here gathering genetic material because they certainly are doing that.
1: Well, they're not denying that they're certainly uh, you know collecting genetic material. The the problem was I said a moment ago. They've been doing it over 70 years now. Surely they've got enough. As far as time goes, time travel, um, I can only speculate again, but I'd like to give yourself and your lovely viewers my own thoughts. And that is, if there is such a thing as time travel, and there's a possibility that, that that it is there, these people, when they come back in time or go forward in time, we'll talk about coming into our time, I believe that they can't be seen. They're there, but duty frequencies, etc., we can't see them, and they can't interfere with what we're doing. And I think if time travel is possible, then the reason we don't see any activity and things like that is possibly because they are there, but they're, in, they're on a different spectrum, a different frequency. It's like I've said to people, uh, people say to me, "Well, Malcolm, <laughs> I've not seen a ghost and I've not seen a UFO. And sometimes my, I believe that the more psychic aware a person is, the more chance you may see something. You could have five people in a haunted room and only two will see a spirit. And the other, the other people will go, but I can't see anything. It's like a radio, an old radio. You tune in to get this, the frequencies. Jacques Valley had a, a lot of good theories about frequencies and vibrations. And I do believe that we're dealing with, these these aliens, it's coming into our frequency and changing and moving away again. And what we have to bear in mind is there's so many UFOs have been seen diving into the oceans of our world and coming out of the oceans of our world, USOs, for instance, more so around the, the island of Puerto Rico. So they're clear, they may well be bases, bases in the oceans of this planet. We know more about the surface of the moon than we do... About uh, what is under our, our own um, oceans. We look at the, how deep the Mariana Trench is, for instance. There may well be bases down there. What I have learned over 45 years lately is not to poo poo anything. We laughed at the, the Wright brothers. We laughed saying, that will never fly. At Kitty Hawk, it did. We laughed at Marconi, we laughed at Edison, we laughed at John Logie Baird with the television. That will never work. It did. People shouldn't laugh and poke fun at things just because it sounds ridiculous. Ufology is a wonderful subject to be into. Not so wonderful if you've been abducted. I I, I, I take, take that. But clearly, we need more scientists to become involved with this. And sadly, we know that they probably won't become involved because their peers will say, oh, you're what? Yeah,
0: it you know no, can ruin your career very quickly in the yeah, science. Yeah. I know scientists who are involved. Hal Pudoff is involved. Uh, Gary Nolan is involved, Kit Green. But there are not many. There are few. Inf- Dr. Valet is a scientist, and he's involved. And he's, he's just written a wonderful forward to my new book, Them, which is out uh, hopefully on March the 15th. And so uh, in any case, uh, th- that's all. Those people are there, but they are isolated in other yeah. words, uh, they're not. If you read the Wikipedia intri- intri- entry on Hal Putoff, it's shameful—a pack of lies. Yeah. And he—I asked him about it. He said, "Well, I don't bother to keep it up. Uh, I have my own life." And and um, you know, so he, I said, "You know, every every troll in 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 the scientific community is after you." And he just laughed. I don't blame him for laughing because he 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 can laugh I, he's at the center of the thing i know him quite well and uh he really is at the center of the secret world and working on this in the in a very honest way there's nothing wrong with what hal does in other words he's not an evil secret keeper at all he's simply a physicist who's deeply into this now but i'd like to go back to um to the hybridization issue that you talked about because of course that was a has been a dreadful part of my life uh 11 years after we after i had the semen removed first of all that same year or no two years later my wife and i were shown a baby and i don't remember anything about the baby at all just that it happened we were shown the baby we're leaving for a restaurant we were shown the baby and uh, we didn't remember. we had, It was in a missing time condition. But we were suddenly 15 minutes late. We'd walk down to the car and then pr- apparently just sat there motionless for 15 minutes. and And then here we were racing off to the restaurant because we had lost all that time. And what did we do in the car? We talked about babies. And then we realized what had happened. And it was very chilling. Fast forward 11 years, and this boy shows up in the woods behind our house, who is our cabin in upstate New York, who is terribly disturbed and can read minds, and will get into your mind in the night. And we lose the cabin finally. We're so oppressed by the media that people stop buying my books. We move to Texas. And the next thing I know, he's hiding out beside the condo in a little cul-de-sac that we've moved to. He stayed with us. I finally drove him off. And years later, I thought to myself, my God, my God, that was my child. I don't know where he is now or what happened to him. But I will tell you this. I am not the only abductee and close encounter witness with a story like that, a heart-rending story like that. So, you know, I applaud your work, but you guys have got to help us figure this out because how many people are involved and it's not as you said, it's not just genetic sampling. It can't be, can't be because there's too many people involved. Speculate what else could it be? Could they be seeding another planet with human beings? And if so, why are they all so
1: monstrous and screwed up? Well, it's not just that. Um, we, we've got to consider the fact that these other so-called other creatures visiting planet Earth as well. Oh, oh,
0: wait a minute, Malcolm. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I apologize to you, but not really to the free dreamlanders because we're taking another break. Uh, we'll be right back, and Malcolm is, I'm sure, going to have some extraordinary things to say. We'll be right back. We're talking to Malcolm Robinson, his new book, The Falkland Hill UFO Incident, with but with a 40-year career as a researcher, uh, I'm picking his brain for a lot of other things as well. Suffice to say that the Falkland Hill Incident is worth waiting for. It's extraordinary, and we will be uh, going to it right after this story. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's a very bizarre incident, the Falkland Hill incident. Um, it's probably one of Scotland's most bizarre cases for a whole range well, of
0: reasons. Well, well, we were going to talk about hybrids first.
1: Okay, yes, we can do. Yeah, that.
0: yeah let's, let's talk about your theories about what may be going on, because you talked about an agenda and said you didn't know what it was, but then you said uh, that they're not just take sampling genetic material because too many people are
1: involved, and that's quite right. So what else could it be? Well, we've obviously got to look at uh, these other creatures allegedly coming to, to planet Earth. I'm talking about the reptilians, etc. Now, incredibly, as this may sound, Whitley, um, my research, my colleagues in Scotland, we haven't come across any reptilian sightings in Scotland. There may be somebody watching a show that says that's, that's not true, but it's, I mean, over 40 years, it's always a grace. But getting back to the possibility of what is the agenda, what is what's going on here? You're quite right. It can't be a genetic sampling. It, it could it be to repopulate a dying planet? It sounds preposterous, you know. And they've got to be a cutoff point here. They've got to be a, a kind of draw the line in the sand where they have got to make themselves openly known. We know that when people have been abducted, um, they try and speak or they say telepathically, "Well, why are you here?" But getting back to the A70 case, Gary said, and he said to these Greys, Why are you here? What do you want? And the word they got back was sanctuary. Sanctuary. Now we know what sanctuary means. That's a place of people can, you know, nice and easy, quietness, etc., love, etc. Why would they? why would he say that? That was a strange thing to say
0: sanctuary, that's probably the most telling word I've ever heard about this you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about it off the top of my head and speculate here but that's a big word, I'm going to think about that for a long time because, you know, we had on the show recently uh, uh, two two uh, and excuse me, folks, if I'm not pulling their names up right away. Uh, I do this every week. <laughs> so so um, uh, anyway, we had two guests who were talking about the possibility that the Greys were essentially brilliant machines that were in search of souls that they didn't have souls, and they they were conscious enough to know that when when the, when their lives ended, they would just disappear. And that they were not they were not giving their lives to souls that would go on, and they wanted souls, and I thought that might be true, but it's you know they never proved it uh the the guests and it was a very interesting show, I have to say so the um uh, but what if what if they have no home? and they're looking for a place to be, and they found this place, and we're already here, and they're trying to make versions of themselves that are like us, so they can fit in. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Or is it just like science fiction to you?
1: It makes sense in the degree that we should always look at these things. As I said before, let's look out the box. They may be trying to model themselves on part of, of this hybridisation. Maybe it's part them, part us, and that's a possibility. Um, but I mean, when you look back, these things have been there in Renaissance paintings and cave etc. We seem to be no further forward in, in analysing the, the what they're truly here for, and that's a million-dollar question that I get asked. My colleagues get asked, "What is this agenda?" When we look at the press conference in 2001, we had all the generals, the military people. And I went, yes, at last, these are men from the American Air Force and and the American military who have seen these things, have appeared over silos, switched off um, machinery, etc. Surely we're going to get an answer. And it was yesterday's news, sadly. You know, it never went any forward. And that's the thing, but when the Pentagon released these uh, images of these fast-moving objects, they called them gimbal Go Fast, Um, you know, these jets, it was taken off from the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And the Pentagon, as we know, came out and says, we don't know what these things are. Now, either they do, and it was just an exercise to find out how we would get on, or it's the Russians or the Koreans, or, which I believe, it's up there. I think the agenda is slowly manifesting itself in a in a way that there, there are more and more sightings across this planet of ours. The abduction phenomena, phenomena seems to be on the increase as well. Should we be worried? Possibly, possibly, because let's. Well, I think I think we should certainly be worried. I think we should. I think
0: we desperately need to understand this. Um, and by the way. The shibboleth that's being spread around by primarily, I think, the U.S. Department of Defense and its ever faithful brother, GCHQ, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, is that these might be Russian or Chinese or something of ours. What they prefer the public not know or remember is that the Twining Memorandum from September of 1947 clearly describes the flight characteristics of UFOs that are exactly like the characteristics of the gimbal and tic-tac objects in 1947. Therefore, they are not Russian. They are not Chinese. They are not ours. Those are intentional lies designed to cloud the situation, which gets me to my question for you. Why? Why cloud? Why are they working so hard to deceive the public about this? Malcolm, I mean, you must know this inside and out. Give us your
1: ideas. Well, I'll give you what I believe is happening. I truly, truly, honestly believe that the governments of this world know more than they're letting on about the UFO phenomenon. That, that's for sure. You just gave us a for instance there. I mean, when you look at under the Freedom of Information Act, it was passed many years ago in America and now here in the United Kingdom, many pre-classified government documents were released to the public and they were still heavily blacked out, paragraphs blacked out, and it can't be just addresses of the witnesses. I mean, there's something clearly going on. People have said, and even Gary Weiris says, that um, people have been abducted and they have seen military people in underground caverns, etc. And that's quite worrying as well because if if the American government or any government is in cahoots with these greys, and I do think to some degree they are, then we should be worrying it. I mean, it leads on to the question of back engineering and etc., etc. But I think there is a, an element of uh, the governments of this world knowing more than they're letting on. Um, uh, and so, therefore, when we look at an agenda, Again, I'm only speculating, Whitley, when we're looking at an agenda, maybe they're trying to get all this technology from the greys, from whoever is behind us. And um, maybe there's an agreement with the American or any government that, yeah, you can take people at will if you want, and but we need your technology. I'm only speculating, of course.
0: So we have a situation where someone is here. They're doing this to us. They may be making versions of themselves that are essentially us, that look like us. But if the boy that was outside our cabin and then followed us to Texas is any example, there's one difference between them and us. That is that they can read minds because the boy could read your mind very easily and not only could he read your mind you could feel him in there and it was not an easy experience it was really creepy and at least i could feel him in there and couldn't and he would be it when he was was in uh, we were in texas he would stand outside our condo in a little dark cul-de-sac we were on the ground floor and it was absolutely he was three feet from my head four feet from my head. And I could feel him and hear him in my mind. That's why I drove
1: him off, basically, because I couldn't live like that. Do you agree that, Whitley? Do you think he, if, if he appears in the future, would you embrace him with warm arm? You know, how, how would you feel if he came back into your boy, life? Boy, have I thought and thought
0: about that. I honestly don't know, Malcolm. I wish I could tell you. Oh yes, I've seen past it all, and now I would do it. But that's not true. This is something very different and very difficult. It's yeah. horribly difficult, all of it.
1: Did you manage to get photographs of the ch- of this this chap? This, this?
0: No, no, uh, I didn't. And uh, when I would even think about taking a picture of him when we were at the cabin in upstate New York, where there were a couple of situations where I could have, he would immediately run off yeah. when I would think about it. Yeah. Um, And in Texas, there was never an opportunity. Uh, so, uh, but he was definitely real. Uh, definitely. Real. What I didn't do at the time, and he smoked constantly and he would leave these, these piles of cigarette butts in the, in the, in, 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 in the woods behind the house. And um, I should have taken some to get DNA samples. But at the time, in the the mid-90s, that wasn't so easy to do as it is now. And, you know, it was a very expensive, difficult process. And uh, I just didn't think of it. I was too desperate. I was going broke and losing my cabin. And the last thing I was thinking about was things like that.
1: Maybe we're answering our own questions here. And what I mean by that, Whitley, is you're... Convinced? Eventually, you got convinced that this, this gentleman, this this man, was your son through an abduction. I just it, feel it. I don't. I, I wouldn't say I was convinced. But yeah. go ahead. And maybe that's what what's going on here. Maybe they're trying to make molds, for want of a better word, of humankind. We, you know, they're wanting us to be like them, or vice versa. And maybe that's what's going on. Because, like I said, maybe. I, woman who was abducted, she was told, hey, this, this alien hybrid child is part you and it's part us. Is that the agenda? And if it is, where is it leading? How far does this go? Um, are they looking to overtake this planet? I mean, do they, are they they? want to repopulate another planet? It sounds fanciful. It sounds Steven Spielberg. It sounds Jim Watson Laboratory. But we've got to think about these things. We've got to look out the box, you know.
0: If we narrow it down, we come to this, I think. Uh, first, they have telepathy, we do not.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: These beings, these humanoid creatures, the hybrids have telepathy. The second thing is the greys have no no barrier between the living and the dead. The I don't think they even have the idea of the dead. The soul and the body are part of the same world to them. And I'm quite sure that's true of the hybrids as well. So the hybrids are versions of us who have two critical properties that we lack, but that the grays have. And so far, I mean, the kid boy was smoked all the time because he was he could not stop the thoughts of other people coming into his head. In other words, he lived in a cacophony of 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 random thought that he could never stop listening to. Yeah, and that was that that was his reality, and that's why he smoked. Because if you you look in the literature about schizophrenia, you'll find that schizophrenics who hear voices smoke because nicotine quiets the voices, and that was what he was doing. He was very very disturbed, Malcolm. He you couldn't get near him. I mean, you, we tried, and you you could not get near him. Uh, oh, he was so bizarre, poor kid. Okay. Now we've done that, and uh, we're going to, I'm unfortunately going to say goodbye in a couple of minutes to our free dreamlanders, but we're, I'm not going to be so evil as to say, and now we're going to talk about the Falkland Hill UFO incident, goodbye, free dreamlanders. So let's give them a few extra minutes this time, and let's start, we'll, we'll talk about it for about 10 minutes, and then we'll we'll leave the free side and go on. And dreamlanders don't forget to subscribe to the show so i don't have to go through this every week i'd love to just have a long hour and a half show with no commercials and none of that to worry about so far not happening okay <laughs> the falkland hill incident can you set the scene what what began this incident
1: well it happened in september 23rd and uh, 1996 And the principal witnesses were Mary Morrison. She was 33 years of age. Uh, Her son, Peter, he was 10. Her friend, Jane, was 38. And her daughter, uh, Susan, he was 16. That's the main primary witnesses. What happened is as follows. On that evening, they were back at Jane's farmhouse. Now, again, we're talking a part of Scotland where it's just fields, little cottages here, farmhouse there. It's not a built-up area. Now, they had ran out of coffee and they said, oh, let's go to this shop. There's a shop about a couple of miles away in a small town called Frookie. We love these Scottish-named towns, Frookie. And so they jumped in the car. That was Mary Morrison, Jane and 10-year-old uh, Peter is in the car. And they drove along this, this, this road. And as they were driving, it was late at night. It was 8 o'clock and it was dark. They claimed they were astonished, astonished to see this large black triangular craft, which is so common these days. It was about four or five hundred yards in front of them. It was hovering part over a field and part over the the road. They stopped the car and they could not believe what they were looking at. And so Mary decided to flash the, the car headlights at this object. And as it did so, as they did so, this object emitted two columns of tubular lights It spun round and spun round on the road. And then it, it retracted these lights into the body of this craft and just screamed away and was gone in seconds. Needless to say, they were, they were quite um, bamboozled by that and shook up by that. So they went to the shop, they got a uh, the, the jar of coffee And on the way back, the same or similar object came screaming in their direction so much so and so close that uh, 10-year-old Peter, who was in the back seat, started to cry. He was crying his eyes out. He thought it was going to crash into the car. It didn't. It just went over. The car and was gone. So they went back to Jane's house, and they told Jane's daughter, Susan... You'll never believe what we've just seen. What? What are those UFO things? Oh, don't be so silly. There are no such things as UFOs. She says, honestly, we saw this. So Susan eventually says, okay, then let's go out and have a look then. So they went back in the car and they drove along that road. They never saw anything. Then they saw strange lights, strange lights coming above a forest canopy. So they drove down this little back road and they were amazed. They were amazed, red, blue, and green lights coming up from the forest into the air. And in front of the forest was this terrific blue glow, this blue, beautiful blue glow pervaded there in the scene. And we're looking at this. Wow. Now, also in the sky, and it sounds ridiculous. This is why it's so controversial. It's all their testimony. They said above them, about a 1,000 feet above them, it was like stars stars these twinkly things like twinkling but they were not in the depths of space they were about a thousand feet up above their heads and also on a nearby hill called falkland hill there was this large orange ball which was moving at the top of the hill and it was all sparkling and it was like you could hear it fizzing it wasn't ball lightning now they took their gaze back to this blue light and it dissipated and then suddenly they saw a scene which I have not come across in all my years in ufology. And what they claim they saw was not 10, it's not 20, it's not 30, it's not 100. The hundreds of these small grey creatures who were bending down, lifting boxes up and carrying cylinders or canisters. And they were taking them back into, into the woods where there was a large structured object sitting nest nestling in the woods and at either side of this strange spectacle there was these taller greys as if they were in charge looking at this scene as if they were a, on a building site and you the, had the, the gaffer i don't know how you say it in america or canada a boss man making sure everything's going all right they looked in charge and one of these large creatures put his but the back of his hands stretched it down and put it on the grass And there was also probably about six or seven feet light, a ball of light free-floating above the grass as well. And they're mesmerized by this. They couldn't believe it. But that's when things started to get scary. Because what they saw, and again, what I'm about to tell you and your lovely viewers is something I have not come across. What they claim they saw was two or three of these creatures, these greys, were encased. In these big bubbles. It's like a, if you can imagine a child's bubble, but only about six feet tall. And they were in this bubble and they were being blown across this farmer's field. Remember, it's, this is not city limits, not city centre, just fields. They were being blown across this farmer's field. And at this point, Susan, who was sceptical and that's why she's in the car, screamed. She says, There's one standing outside the car, staring in staring into the car needless to say they put their foot on the gas and screamed away from that area and as they did so whitley there was a tremendous blue flash illuminated the whole of the area and they just screamed off and they were gone human beings are in were inquisitive so they were shaken when they got back to their house they were shaken up but they wanted to know more. And they went out again.
0: Of course. We're more you know something psychologically, curiosity is more more powerful than fear. Oh yes. Yeah, oh absolutely. We are talking to <laughs> excuse me, we've been talking to Malcolm Robinson about at last about the Falkland Hill UFO incident. And Malcolm, before we leave our free Dreamlanders in the dust, which I hate to do every week. Tell us a little bit about why you're wearing a 14 Times T-shirt.
1: Yeah, 14 Times is one of these magazines we get in the UK, and it goes all over the world, and it's...
0: Oh, yeah, I, mean, I know it well. Yeah, of
1: you course. get it? They're good stuff. And uh, obviously, it's uh, for those people getting into our subject for the first time, they can learn all about how bizarre these cases are of things that fall from the sky, of ghosts, of port- guys, of Nessie, of UFOs. It's all compact into the 14 times. And it's a wonderful, wonderful vehicle to educate those young kids who's coming into this subject with the first time and let them see what truly is out there.
0: Malcolm Robinson, his new book, The Falkland Hill UFO Incident, Scotland's most controversial UFO case. We're just getting started, folks. Uh, we're going to go on deeper into this case, and you're going fi- to find out some things that you did not think could happen, but they did free dreamlanders. thank you so much for being with us on dreamland okay, Malcolm. These people have been touched by this, even the skeptical one and maybe especially her uh what what then happens uh they go back to the to the to, they go back yes the last thing you would think someone would do, but actually something that almost anyone would do, as we know, from the way the human psyche is built.
1: Absolutely. And you've got to remember, these people lived in that area they were well aware of aircraft, of helicopters, etc. But this was something out of the twilight zone. They could not believe it. They went back out and they saw these blue lights and these lights coming up from the forest floor. The way they described these lights coming up through the forest, if you can remember during the Second World War in, in London, England, they used these big searchlights to illuminate the bellies of the, the German bombers. They said it, it was like that, you know, but only it was coloured lights streaming up in there. They saw these creatures again, but they kept their distance at that point. Now, it's fair to say that that night and subsequent nights thereafter, there were a lot of UFO activity around their properties. Indeed, uh, Mary Morrison, she was leaning out of her bedroom window and it has a commanding view of the valley. It slopes down, the valley floor slopes down and it was late at night and she says, Malcolm, I was just looking how beautiful the landscape is. And then suddenly I heard this rumble I heard this this noise and I looked up and only about 50, 60 feet above my head was this big machine, this big UFO moving silently and slowly over the rooftop of my house. And suddenly it stopped and screamed away and was sitting away in the horizon. That was followed by a red spherical ball as well that just came away. But probably we spoke about it being controversial. Here's some more four instances. She was running a bath for her uh, 10-year-old son, Peter. So Mary was on the phone downstairs. Her son's upstairs. And then suddenly she heard, Mom, Mom, come quick, come quick. She threw the phone down. She bounded up the stairs. What? What is it? She went into the bathroom. What is it? And the little boy says that a small grey creature suddenly materialized in front of the bath. Where this is strange, Whitley is, and I'm not aware of many of these cases, this little gray had jagged teeth, jagged teeth. It just suddenly melted away.
0: Oh, that, that's so nice to hear. Because, you know, I live with this invisible aspect of this in my life all the time. Yeah. Uh, the most recent manifestation of it, which I could see, was two nights ago, so I haven't seen any jagged teeth. I hope I don't. <laughs> okay, well, let's go on. So yeah. he, yeah, oh, go, okay, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, um, so he, he saw these jagged teeth. Now, I've, I've tried to look through the, the folklore and mythology of ufology, and I, I think there was only one Italian case that somebody mentioned that, and if any of your viewers know of any other cases, please let Whitley know at Dreamland. Another occasion was that 10-year-old Peter was playing in his bedroom with uh, some friends. He had a friend over and were playing with their their cars, little cars on the carpet. And then suddenly his little friend, he was probably, I think he was 11 or 12, so he was two years older than than Peter. He said, what's that? And he looked out the bedroom window and there's a grey, a a grey white creature, free floating, Outside the bedroom window. Now there wasn't an outbuilding, there wasn't a shed that it was standing on looking in. It was free-floating, there was nothing there. And then suddenly he just rose up into the air and was gone in second. Now the other thing about it is there was a strange burning smell which they could detect coming from the house. They didn't know where it was coming from. You know, that was quite bizarre. And they also had a, a ghostly dog uh, in the house. And the reason I say that, Whitley, is there were the family was sitting down at breakfast. They've got they've got cats, no dogs, they've got cats. And the cat had a water bowl and they had they had this noise, this placement of water. And they looked down at the bowl of water and they could see the water being licked up by nothing at all. And you know, that was quite bizarre. Now we did
0: yeah, use- it sounds a little bizarre. That's bizarre. I, that qualifies.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we did uh, advocate the use of hypnotic regression, but th- they didn't want to do that. Now, another strange, bizarre bit about this case. When we interviewed Mary and her son, Peter, we were sitting down on the chair, and little Peter said, Malcolm, why don't you ask the, the aliens what you want? Why? Why? There's three of them standing there at the window. So, you know, <laughs> so I turned around with my camera, my colleagues all turned around with the cameras, hoping upon hope that maybe these greys is going to be standing there. They were nothing, nothing at all. And I looked at his you mother. I cannot
0: tell you how many people have this story to tell. I have that story to tell too. It's very, very frustrating. Yes. And it, does it, it suggest to you that they they have ability to prevent themselves from being seen on camera? Or is it that they can't
1: be photographed for some reason? Did you see anything? Well, we never saw anything there. I, I walked into that space and I says, where are they? Or oh, they've moved away from you. So I looked at Mary, his mother, and I said, can you see anything yes what can you see and she said i can see this mist this shimmering like on a summer's day you know on the road you think it's water and it's just the heat haze i see a shimmering malcolm and i know if i look strongly enough i will see them they'll appear and she has seen them numerous times in that farmhouse when she didn't want to She walked into a room and they're standing there. And that's the frightening aspect about this whole scenario when people are dealing with these creatures. They're coming in to humankind, airspace, and, you know, most often they're not wanted. And it's very, very frightening. And obviously you've sadly had to go through this all your life Whitley. You know where we're coming from. There are people watching this show right now and saying, yeah, I can relate to that. It's happened to me. So clearly that there are people here, but we need to get these people out and really let the world know more about what's going on here.
0: Let's, um, let's talk now about the Fife incident.
1: It's the same one, the Falkland case. Oh, it's the same case, yeah.
0: It's just a different name?
1: Different name. What I should also say as well, that these ladies had strange bruises on their body that previously were not there. One was under the right breast of uh, Mary and Jane had one bruise in her buttock. And whenever I, I interview abductees, I always ask that question. Have you noticed any strange anomalies on your person? Have you got any bruises, any scars, etc.? Because we have to, even though I believe wholeheartedly that they're dealing with a real bona fide phenomena here, it's my job as a researcher to unmask any fraudulent mediums, to unmask any fraudulent people who just want the five minutes worth of fame. We have to be careful as researchers to get to the truth. And it's not just people trying to muddy the water, so to speak, you know. Um but I I, I totally believe these these people. Now they actually moved away. Um it was a, a pre-moved plan prior to this event. They moved away down to Wales and we we didn't leave any forwarding address, they didn't leave any forwarding uh, email or phone number, and it's it's quite frustrating because there's so much more to this story than than we know. Some of the people are mentioned in the no, book. Mary was the one who moved away. Yes,
0: that's correct. Yeah, and you don't know why she cut off all contact, or?
1: Um. Well, we do know that it was a pre-planned move anyway. It was in you know it was on the cards, so to speak. Um. But I don't know why she never got in contact. That's that's what we don't know. Maybe she just didn't want to know any more about it because this was a big. Yeah,
0: it, well, it, it eats at you, and I can see that someone might want to just get on with their lives. A lot of, a lot of abductees, the last thing they want to do is talk about this. So I understand that very well. In fact, I've often wondered whether or not I should have talked about it. I don't know. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I anyway, good. Go ahead. and no, I think you did the right thing, Lily. You know, obviously when your your book came out, communion that was a catalyst as we all know for people across the world to recognize hey i don't stand alone yeah
0: it was the first moment that. of first real moment of contact where the public mind was opened up because they so many people remembered the face on the cover it was a trigger point of profound trigger point really was i had no idea <laughs> it would be that when we published it and i'm glad i didn't because i probably would have been terrified um, now I'm I wouldn't say I'm terrified, but I'm very uneasy about the whole thing.
1: What I'm equally pleased about is is, you know, obviously writing this book and um Oh thank you for holding it up. <laughs> that's that opens up the spirituality aspect of your life and your wife, etc. I'm totally, totally convinced there is a life after death. My research yes. has clearly shown to me that each and every one of us, when it's our time We'll meet our loved ones who's gone before us. That is a fact.
0: You know, I just have the feeling that these people, these beings are here because of that. And yeah, I'll never forget the time Anne walked out of her office and said, Whitley, this has something to do with what we call death. And that was a very seminal moment and in my life and maybe in the whole life of our exploration of what this is. And I, I've thought to myself, what if they are the dead?
1: Well, maybe. (laughs) Maybe they look. Maybe it's to do with souls. Maybe it's to do with this. Maybe they don't have a a life after death as such, and maybe that's what they're trying to search for. Um, Maybe maybe that's what they want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people say that God made man in his own image. So whose image are these small gray creatures? Are they, are they more than one God? I mean, obviously, that's another conversation as well. Anyway, you know. Um, you know, here's an
0: idea. What if they came here and, my God, they found what they always assumed was impossible in this universe, an immortal species, and it's us? Yeah. That's an awesome thought. I'd never really thought of it that way before.
1: We continue. Mankind continues. Okay, not in the physical form, but in a spiritual form.
0: She continues for sure.
1: It she does. Absolutely. She was
0: a master of afterlife knowledge, and she created that avatar, the white moth. And uh, she is just uh, still with us as she as she wishes to be. And, you know, she says to me, people have to remember me because I can't find them if they don't. So that's why she's up there. Oops, she's (laughs) up there. (laughs) uh, So that every time I have the show, she's there and people can see her and remember.
1: Yeah, and that's the beauty of it. You know, I mean, I didn't get to believe and acknowledge life after death willy-nilly. It came after many years after speaking to clinical physicians speaking to people and near-death experiences out-of-body experiences yes i've looked at the oxygen starvation to the brain you know it's just you know people hallucinating etc but there's so many good tales of young children going to almost the afterlife and seeing people they never knew before and they came down and they go to somebody's house and they see a photograph oh i saw him when i was in space or when i was in heaven i have never seen that fella before it was a great uncle who lived before they were born? So there, there are all these things as well, you know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you no, know, we have afterlife people on in the show all the time. Uh, uh, we had a lady Elizabeth who uh, was uh, struck by lightning, uh-huh. and she was walking into church or a synagogue, I believe she was Jewish, uh, w- with her children, and there was a lightning strike and, you know, she hurried the children on into the synagogue. And uh, then to her amazement, no one seemed to know she was there, but they were all trying to help the children who were terrified. Yeah. Yeah. And she thought, what in the world? Why doesn't anybody notice me? And the, the, she then she noticed this pile of debris out in the parking lot and it turned out it was her under a burned up umbrella her body and there followed a two-week period excuse me a two-week period in the world of the dead and we had even alexander on the show who is a neurologist who had an incredible extended afterlife experience so and and not only did she does she is she there she planned her exit from January before she she died, as you know, having read Afterlife Revolution. So they are here. Yeah. And maybe what is happening among us is something that I referred to a moment ago, that the world of the, the veil between the worlds is breaking up, breaking down. Maybe our visitors come from the other side somehow. Maybe it's a, here's another wild speculation, but we're having fun, hopefully. Maybe they are a dead species that is totally died out and they want to have bodies again. And that's why they're here trying to make bodies that will fit them, that maybe their planet was destroyed or they even destroyed it. And it now can't create bodies that fit their souls.
1: Could be, could be.
0: Boy, that's an interesting that's idea. Try to read a whole book about that. Maybe you should do it. Maybe one of
1: us could do it. I think that's that's the beauty of having podcasts and speaking to like-minded people. As you bounce off people and you learn ideas, and then suddenly a wee light comes up, and you say, "Hey, I never thought about that before." And that ufology is a big, big jigsaw puzzle. It's fell on the floor and we're putting pieces together from all continents. And um, that's why it's so a wonderful subject to be in, clearly.
0: Uh, Jenny Randall's has uh, written quite a few wonderful books. Uh, we had a, a falling out, unfortunately, during the Bud Hopkins years. And so I, I don't think she would speak to me. But in any case, she's still with us uh,
1: yeah, very much so. She's not so active in ufology these days. Uh, what, it was Jenny that got me into ufology when I was a young guy. I was reading all her books and I went, wow. And so I had to interview her. I interviewed her back in well, 1980. Uh, David uh, sorry, uh, David Hainesell, Bruce Maccabee, all the big people were at our conference in England. And um, it was just great. But she's a wonderful person, not doing as much as she did before. And sadly, she lost her mother um, to spirit a few years ago. Um, but yeah, she's she's still a very, very intelligent lady.
0: Wow. Well, the um, the, the, her book Science and the UFOs is what got me hooked up with Bud Hopkins. And without that, I never would have figured out what was going on. I never would have figured it out. That was probably the most important meeting with anybody in my life. Then he had a falling out with me. <laughs> but he was not right he had he beliefs about some things that had happened between us that hadn't happened and he was wrong about that and you know there's nothing i could do to reach him so i just had to accept it but i thought then and still think now he was a wonderful man and a real pri- pioneer so is jenny for that matter so yeah. i'm glad that, i was glad that you i saw that she had written a forward to your book because i wanted to bring her up and say something about her so.
1: you've, you've, you've got to Me Again, you've got to get in touch with her again, Whitley. I'll tell her to to get in touch with you. (laughs) Okay. Well, listen, I have one last question. This big
0: triangular object ended up on the ground at one point. It landed. Tell us about that.
1: Well, when they were looking at this amazing spectacle, all these small greys busily doing lifting boxes and and, uh, cylinders, they did indeed go to this area of the forest where there were hardly any trees so there was like a wee alcove kind of thing and there was this object this triangular shaped object nestling in this wood and it was there now it begs the question what was going on there was it something they were meant to see was it just a break in a dimension that that's an area either in the past or in the future, it will be very, very important. Clearly, they, they either walked into something that wasn't meant for them, or it was. And um, But this object was there. It was huge. It was metallic. And they'll they never, ever forget it. You know, And that's the thing about UFOs. We spoke about, you know, you look about the Scandinavian ghost rockets of the, the, the 1940s, ufology and the shapes have been changing all the time. Back in Belgium in 1980, that was more or less the start of the, tri- the flying triangle. So that said, they were way back, 40, 50 years before that. So the technology is progressing with us. Are they wanting us to see what they want us to see? Or what? The object that was in Deckman Woods was solid, then it dematerialized, then it solidified again. Quickly, the A70 case, the the chaps that was abducted. Gary says, Malcolm, I woke up one night in my bed and I saw a little grey standing at the foot of my bed. and this is what he said. And he says, This time I'm going to do something. He jumped out of, out of bed, he ran towards the small grey and he punched this little grey. He went over like a tumbling acrobat. And it the, the little grey had an expression as if he was surprised to be seen. And then suddenly. This little grey ran towards Gary. A tremendous flash. And Gary says, I lost consciousness. And I woke up. I says, was it a dream? Do you think you may have been dreaming? He says, oh, no. Oh, no. He says, I've definitely, that definitely happened. And there was another occasion when he was in a car with his two young sons. And he was driving away. Not the age 70, but another area. When suddenly this mist He said it was like a mist, this white cloud came over the bonnet of the car and came up over the windscreen, and his two young sons were screaming, Dad, Dad, what's going on here? And Gary felt to himself, oh no, what is this? And when he was younger, because we spoke at the top of the show about, is it maybe these things happen in their childhood, I said to Gary, have you seen anything when you were younger? Oh yeah. What did you see? He says, when I was uh, in the the scouts, I was maybe about 11 years of age, and we were walking towards the school, and I saw on the roof, there was a chimney, and there was this horrible, hideous creature. I says, you mean a grey? Oh, no, no. It was, I I don't even know how to describe it, Malcolm. It was like a gargoyle-like thing, and it was real. And I says, is it maybe an adult in a mask or, or a suit? He says, oh, no. This thing moved towards us and looked, and then it just disappeared. So these things are flitting into and out of our, our realm here for sure. Um, they can dematerialize at will. Jacques Vallée has definitely got the right answers. You know, its dimensions It's something to do with that for sure.
0: Yeah, I think Jacques is really on the money. I'm so glad he wrote a forward for them Uh because I reverence his, his knowledge, he's one of the greats. And uh, he, 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 you know, Passport to Magonia takes this back all the way across human history. Oh yeah, And there's a lot of connection, even between what we've been talking about, and, uh, and the fairy stories of the fairy faith of Northern Europe, and all those stories, which are, so many in the British Isles and in Scotland, goodness knows a lot. Uh, but at the same time, there's something very different about it. It's very physical and it has a very scientific feel to it. You know, someone taking DNA and taking genetic material and sex, as, uh, sexual material, that's, that's not fairy tales no. at all. That's something else. And which gets me to this. Don't you wish we knew what was in those boxes and cylinders?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Would, what would, was, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm just like yourself. We are inquisitive. What was the purpose of these boxes and these cylinders? You know, the, that's why I love this subject so much. It's yeah. no an answer, but you're drawn back. You don't have that answer, you know? My question to you, Whitley, is do you think that you will have any more experiences by the, by the Greys? Do you think they're still having an agenda with, with you?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm integrated into their world. I, You know, they have, they're have, they here all the time. I'll show you. This is a little radio, uh, uh, which let me see if I can get in the screen. Yeah, my yeah. listeners know about this. This is a silent frequency. There's nothing on this frequency mm-hmm. except in this apartment. If you take that radio and you step out onto the deck with it, it stops immediately. Immediately. Yeah. And there's therefore there is something to do it's I think it's something to do with the implant. But, uh, no, it's this is my life. Yeah. I, yeah. I am the last I'll tell you the last really weird thing that happened was 3 nights ago. I was doing my meditation, I guess, at 11 o'clock, the first meditation of the night. If I don't do the second meditation around three, they will wake me up. Uh, They will, and whether it's the greys or not, I don't know. I don't see them, Uh, but, but in any case, I'm doing the first meditation and I open my eyes and I notice that the vertical blinds that I'm facing face out onto the deck are all open. And I think to myself, well, that's odd. I closed those blinds quite a while ago because I closed them in the evening so I can have my privacy. And um, I close my eyes again, meditate for a little bit more. And I think, I wonder if I really saw that. And I opened my eyes and they're closed except for one, which is slowly closing completely on its own as if somebody invisible is closing it. But here was the thing. The invisible person, in order to do that, would have had to have been in the room with me. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I thought to myself, you have to live this. This is the life you've chosen. Yeah. Now you've got to go to sleep in this house, knowing that there is an invisible presence here. And I did. And that's kind of how it is.
1: Do you think that people should have GoPro cameras in their, in their homes? I'm loaded with them. I'm loaded with every room <laughs> in the house. Oh, go it's ahead. got cameras.
0: There's even a camera that looks out onto the walkway in front. Uh, and do you know how much I find in those cameras? Nothing. nothing. In all this time, one thing. Okay. And it wasn't a gray. It was one of the 3 a.m. wake-up calls where they, they usually will blow in my face or pinch me or make a sound like a school bell in the front room or something you know it's it's not unpleasant at all i mean you know they're they they can get very shirty if i if i don't wake up for two or three nights in a row they get very un, unpleasant and i don't use an alarm on purpose because i want this to be a, there to be a level of engagement yeah. here. i'm i'm here learning i'm not trying to make it into an automatic habit okay. so um, uh what happened that night was the telephone this my cell phone uh right here is uh, lying on the bedside table every night, same place. It was a little close to the edge, but not so close to the edge that would fall off on its own. And at three o'clock in the morning, you see in the camera, the cell phone slowly slide along and fall off. as if. And Leslie Kane says she could see a black shape behind the phone moving it. And I can see that too. So something is here that is not very physical and oh it'll come down onto the bed from time to time and and sit on my legs and and it's a, there's a weight a couple wow. about a pound or so and a and a wonderful flow of electrical sort of energy coming into my body and that energy comes into my body all the time and I'll tell you one of the funniest times it came in I was at the movies with my children grandchildren and it was a it was the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog movie, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm not into kids' movies, but I am into my grandkids. So yeah. I was sitting there, and I had nodded off a bit. And suddenly, bzz, <laughs> my legs just went crazy. It was whatever was there is using my eyes to see. I know that. And it was interested in the movie. It wanted to see the movie. unlike <laughs> like me. So <laughs> i feeling it's her. I think it's her. Because she would love, mo- she loved movies yeah. like that. Yeah. So that's kind of where I am. Thank you for asking.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just hope that these grays slip up sometime, and we can get the proper evidence. Because obviously, they 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 know they won't be captured on GoPros. But maybe sometime they'll slip up, and we'll get that. And even if we did capture this amazing footage of a gray, people say, well, Malcolm, we're living in the Steven Spielberg age of Dreamwatch laboratory has been manipulated on the computer. and But having said that, the same technology can prove that that's a real thing there. That's a real great. So technology works, you know.
0: I've been looking for this for most of my adult life, Malcolm, and I guess you probably have too, trying to find some kind of closure. You know, one of the things, Annie, when she was researching why this never never focused she found out that questions that can't be answered and can't be left alone actually increase the human intelligence
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know and we always talk about in ancient aliens and things well they were here cha- they've changed our dna well i think that's part of what's happening now mm-hmm. i think because we can't answer these questions the intelligence of everyone involved is increasing and that's Changing our DNA, because we will hand that down to our children. And uh, uh, I think that they're here in part changing our DNA to make us more intelligent. I think they might be here in part to join us in our world somehow. And God knows what else. Probably the things in those cylinders and boxes would tell the story. But we didn't get to open
1: them. If I had have been there, I would have run over that field and really got involved in that. Goodness knows what would have happened, but I would have been there, definitely, you know.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Malcolm, for a wonderful show. I Gosh, I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed this, and I'm sure my viewers and listeners did the same. The Falkland Hill UFO incident is only just the surface of the incredible, wonderful output of Malcolm Robinson over the years, a wonderful UFO researcher. Scotland is lucky indeed to have a man like you on its side when it comes to the paranormal.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Bradley.
0: <clears throat> Thank you, folks, very much as always for being subscribers and for listening and watching Dreamland. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.